you may not know this, but with WBEZ, you can catch up on the news live anytime you want with the WBEZ app or at 91.5 on your car radio. Whether you beam it or stream it, the news is on WBEZ. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and this is the Nerd App Book Club. It's just like a regular book club, except you don't have to share your snacks. This month's book is Molly McGee's very strange debut novel, Jonathan Abernathy, You Are Kind. It is about Jonathan, a young white guy who takes on a super weird job entering and editing the dreams of middle-class workers because it's part of a federal debt relief program. That is all I'm going to say for now. If you have not read the book and you don't want to know what happens, go back and listen to our author interview, which is spoiler free and it is in the feed. If you have read the book or you don't care and you just want to know what's going down, welcome. We are glad to have you. I'm very excited to introduce you to this month's guests. With us, we have Maya Lau, the host of the personal finance podcast, Other People's Pockets. Maya, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Also here is Nick Kwa, a podcast critic for Vulture. Nick, welcome back. I'm sorry, I was promised snacks. <laughs> well, no, it's a BYO snack situation, my friend. Well, I'm going to be very hungry for the next half hour. Oh, okay. Well, we'll make it work. Um, I think we should just start this off with a voicemail. Here is Katrina in Chicago. Hi, Nerdette. I'm reading Jonathan Abernathy, You Are Kind, and it reads like a Wes Anderson film, which is not a bad thing. I'm quite enjoying it. I thought that was a fascinating comparison. I'm not necessarily sure that I agree, hmm. but I love the vibiness of it. What do y'all think? <laughs> yeah, I, I I didn't see that either. <laughs> but um, I'm also not a Wes Anderson fan, so oh, I don't funny. know if I should speak. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like Wes Anderson, I mean, it's they're both stylized, but I feel like this book is so chaotic in a way that Wes mm. Anderson would never be. What do you think, Nick? I, I agree with that. It it doesn't have that um, sort of put-togetherness, right? But I think yes. what the connection is, like, there's a certain tweeness to the internal narrative. Like, mm. there are certain just turns of phrases that's very pat, mm. um, which I, I can I can see that. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I'm not uh, rejecting that comparison entirely. I think also the omniscient narration does kind of speak to that idea of like, mm. you know, the viewer may end up knowing more or the narrator knows more mm-hmm, than the mm-hmm. characters themselves, which I think was a something that a device that worked really well in this novel. For me, it really reminded me of Severance, the show. Yes. Um, and I, I know I'm not original in that comparison, but for those who haven't seen Severance, basically these workers go underground to some office where they have some weird job that nobody knows what they're really doing. And it seems similar to, and, and part of it is that they, they when, once they leave the job every night to go home, they can't remember what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a total... Um, you know, divide between their work life and their personal life. And this felt like that, you know, this idea of going into this other realm and then this work that you've signed up for that might seem to to be a good idea at first. But then the question is, what am I really doing in this job? And is it some sinister thing? Like, that's really what it reminded me of and gave me more of that eerie, creepy feeling. (laughs) Yes, same. Very, very, very much. So yeah, this book occupies a really interesting genre space. Is it something that you normally would have picked up, Maya? No, definitely not. And I really enjoyed this process because 
I felt like, okay, I got, I've been asked to be part of this book club and I have to read this book. Um, so yeah, there were times when I just wasn't really sure what to expect, but I'm really glad mm. that I, that I did because, you know, I am interested in money, obviously. Right. And, <laughs> and, and yeah, I mean, it really, the book really explores this idea of um, we're all caught up in capitalism and ultimately like, you know, I've heard it said um, that ultimately everything is like a pyramid scheme in the sense mm. of um, unless you're at the top, like there's kind of this understanding that everybody below all the all the you know normal workers of the world are all giving way more than they're getting. And there's mm. just this understanding that like that's the contract of yeah. life. And yeah. that if you want to get ahead, then you're going to have to exploit someone else. Um, and yeah, I just thought that it was a really, a really fun and an interesting way to explore that. Yeah, we're all giving more than we're getting. We're also all complicit, which yeah. is so deeply fucked, right? Yeah, and you don't really have a choice. I mean, people mm -hmm. kind of make it seem like, you know, you can pull yourself up from your bootstraps. And mm -hmm. if you're smart, then you can get ahead. But, um, you know, to a large extent, you're you're caught up in this system and you don't really have a choice to be in it or not. Right. Nick, I also asked you to read this book partly because I feel like you are always in the midst of like a pretty exquisite existential crisis around a lot of the themes in this book, like, you know, with work and life and the point of it all. And I'm curious if this is when you would have picked up if I hadn't asked you about it. Oh, yeah. I, actually, I mean, yes, from even from the book cover alone, it's like it's very <laughs> it's very sort of com compelling. Yeah. So it's interesting. I think Jeff Vandermeer was one of the blurbs in the back of the book. Mm -hmm. And like that's I mean, it's the closest um, sort of like group plus like aesthetic cluster. Right. Uh, Vandermeer is like part of the new weird movement. Uh, <laughs> and I like I, I feel like I've read certain kind of like pacing and the amorphousness of reality yeah. in those kinds of books as well. And so there's an element to it. Oh, you know, another kind of book that this uh, that um, Abernathy reminds me of is uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, oh, actually. interesting. There's a certain nature to the humor and there's a certain quality about Abernathy that gives me a lot of like Arthur Dent, right? Oh, this is, that's amazing. This is a dolt um, and yeah. a very annoying dolt <laughs> at that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think I, I would have picked it up. I, I'm not so sure I entirely enjoyed the book. Uh -huh. um, it took me a while for me to grok what McGee was doing yes. in the narration. Yeah. And it took me a little longer to appreciate it. And to a point where it was like a little tedious, but mm. I really admired and enjoyed what she was grappling with. For sure. Um, and yes, it, it very much aligns with my... Uh, like various overlapping existential crises. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling. To get a little more into the plot, we have Jonathan. He's like extremely straddled in debt. Um, and he takes on this very strange job that, as I mentioned, is part of like a federal loan forgiveness program where he's auditing dreams. And I mean, I don't know. It, it does go off the rails in so many different ways. And I think partly it was really fascinating listening to this as an audiobook because in some ways I think it really mm. lended to the quality mm -hmm. of the dreams mm. and the fact yes. that you're just sort of along on this very surreal ride. On the other hand, it also made me wonder sometimes like, wait, is this in the dream or is this actually happening? Mm. And I think that was both like good and bad thing when it came to actually to use your terminology, Nick Grok, what was going on in this book? <laughs> yeah, and I think that it was interesting to 
parse out. I'm curious what you guys think. Um, basically, the the idea in the book is that he's supposed to go and clean out the uh, negative or troubling aspects mm-hmm. of someone's dreams so that the, those people can go and be better, more productive American workers mm-hmm. and not be mm-hmm. weighed down by all the bad things and their ni- their nightmares. Right. And then what happens is you as you vacuum up people's bad nightmares, you erase their memory. And it, at least that's what it seems like is happening because right. you're taking away like a part of them and that they don't remember. They feel like they woke up. They feel like they're forgetting something, but they just move on. And it, yeah, it was kind of it. Like I, I don't know if maybe I. That's a part of like, did I miss? Like, is is she trying to say that like your dreams are your memories, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. or that like your dream? Because I always think of dreams as like, I don't know, just like a fantasy world that is yeah. drawing from your memories or is drawing from things you know, but um, but isn't necessarily like your actual like memories in your brain. Um, I don't know if it matters, but yeah. I interpreted that mechanic to be like somewhat like the eternal sunshine of spotless mind <laughs> in the sense that they're committing some amount of brain damage. Uh, because, But it's also like a segmentation, right? Like they remove certain aspects of the dream and then they're they're kept away somewhere. And then there's, mm-hmm. there's sort of like an effect to mm-hmm. that dreaming so separated, but also allowed its own like autonomy to some extent. So there's, a, there's a, you know, and, and that's the kind of challenge with dream logic, dream narratives, <laughs> right. is that the rules are never super clear. Uh, and it's almost always towards the part of the point or part of the sort of narrative point. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's uh, I, I liked the imagery of like keeping these things in little boxes somewhere. <laughs> mm, yeah, that's real. And do you think the idea is that ultimately this corporation or this government entity is because they talked about monetizing yes. the, the nightmares. The stuff they vacuum the up. The stuff that yeah. you don't like. Yeah, the stuff that it gets vacuumed up. And that, um, you know, there's this idea of dreams are the last frontier. Like dreams mm-hmm. are the final place where we have freedom, where we have full privacy. And that this government agency is trying to capitalize upon that. And so is the idea that all these nightmares get sold to do what? To be I, like be, to be part of warfare? Like what, what happened? What ultimately happens with these nightmares? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't quite catch uh, sort of the the natural outcome of that, but it did feel like the sort of thematic idea I was going for was this idea of like the global north, global south, a little bit. <laughs> the um, the efforts to increase the productivity of this particular society results in a discharge that is used and weaponized, or sort of like. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. has like greater negative effects in places that we don't see. Yeah, mm-hmm. That was kind of the sense I got from yeah. that particular mechanic. Yeah. 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 It's interesting, Maya, to hear you mention the whole like dreams, memories, what, you know, are, do those occupy the same subconscious space? They seem pretty different at the same time. I think they both can have a sort of surreal quality when it comes to trying to recall them, which I think is really interesting to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, but you definitely weren't the only person to be confused by that. I actually got a text message from a friend um, not that long ago who read it and was like, I'm confused. <laughs> and it was exactly around the like, wait, are dreams memories? Like, should those be considered the same thing? I think to a certain extent, it does make sense to me that uh, the things we're really stressed out about probably say a lot about our personalities. And so when those stressors are removed, to a certain extent, our identities have to end up be modif- being modified mm-hmm, as well. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And I think that one one other question I had about the plot was so basically Jonathan Abernathy has this neighbor named Rhoda and mm-hmm. he becomes friends with her and her daughter and and eventually falls in love with her. And but there's kind of this weirdness between Jonathan Abernathy and Rhoda over time where they have weird tiffs and they they like stop talking for a while and he ends up in her dreams and vacuuming out parts of her dreams. Yes. And so sometimes I I was like wait what but what happened between them? Like why is she mad at him yes. or and then right. I guess it was just my only conclusion was oh well She's forgetting things like she like right. her reality is is now altered in ways that he doesn't fully understand and she doesn't really remember. And is that what happened? Like, why were they getting into fights? Well, and we, we, you get farther and farther into the book. It is harder and harder to tell what is happening in his waking life and what mm-hmm. is happening in his dream life. And mm-hmm. I, you know, and there was even a line towards the end where it says something about how years have passed. Yeah. And it made me, my interpretation was that he was, I mean, one, he was altering her consciousness, which wasn't helping anything, but then also he was becoming more and more absent and because she couldn't rely on him. Yeah. My sense was the, all of the above in that sense, right? And there's also that triggering event in which um, they have like a particular opening of the soul moment of each other Mm -hmm. and that, but he essentially like ends that interaction by like just leaving Mm -hmm. and like going to work. Mm -hmm. Um, and I sort of read that as like the sort of beginning friction point uh, mm-hmm. that informs a lot of what happens afterwards because yeah. he's unable, perhaps unwilling to internalize or understand like emotional need or, or providing emotionally um, and and then sort of like falls into the scripts that he has for himself, which is this like decimating sense of I am worthless without labor or something like that. Mm-hmm. Womp womp. Womp, womp. (laughs) I thought it was interesting how she positions Jonathan Abernathy as stupid and this bumbling idiot in life. And I felt like a lot of the energy directed toward him, like from Kai, his supervisor at work, and, and other people, and even just the narrator was like, he's so stupid and he's this idiot. But... I didn't think he was. <laughs> I think he was like a, a normal person who has, you know, real questions about what's happening and it maybe is a bit naive mm, and maybe yes. is a bit believing and, and trusting and just hoping, you know, that by being a good person or by showing up to work, he'll do a good job in life. But I felt like it was sort of a way of, um, you know, positioning him as the the way that we often feel in our economy of like, you're the reason you don't have money is because you're stupid or right, you right. haven't worked hard enough. Or what did you guys think about that? What did you think about this sort of positioning him as this idiot, even though he's not? Well, I mean, I think it, I feel like Nick, you kind of pointed to that with the Arthur Dent thing. I think that's a nice way of framing it because I do think like Maya also, to your point, he was dense. Like he didn't pick up on stuff as quickly as others may have, but I thought he was more along the lines of naive than like yeah. just dumb. And I, he certainly wasn't unkind either. It seemed to me like he was sort of just, I guess I thought of him as like a witless victim, Yeah, you know, where it yeah. was like, he was that's so a, much a, really a part good of this it. system and yes, he wasn't clever enough to figure out how to get out of it, but like most of us aren't. Exactly, exactly, you know? exactly, yeah. 
Yeah, the the most salient quality that has stuck with me about him is 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 that naivete and the witlessness, but also this quality of like putting on airs mm. when being interacted with, and that feels like that is the thing that triggers other people to treat him like he's an idiot because he mm-hmm. interfaces them with them like a really annoying person. And like <laughs> if I met an Abernathy in real life, I probably would be like. God, you're so fucking annoying. <laughs> but of course, it's like not, not his fault necessarily, even though some of it is ingrained perhaps in, in a sense of personality, right? So another thing that I've just found a little maybe wanting is that like there is, you know, Emmanuel is essentially um, an atomic unit, right? Doesn't have a family, mm-hmm. doesn't have time for friends. And so we don't quite understand him in relation to other people until he meets these these coworkers, these women. Um, and there's something... It, it just feels very a little too slight for me to get a clear sense of, like, um, is, is he a mythological creature? <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it, there's, a, there's a certain kind of cartoonish unreality to him, which mm-hmm. I suppose is in keeping with the book. Okay, let's take a quick break, and then we will be back with more of our discussion of Jonathan Abernathy, You Are Kind. You may not know this, But with WBEZ, you can catch up on the news live anytime you want with the WBEZ app or at 91.5 on your car radio. Whether you beam it or stream it, the news is on WBEZ. So I want to go back for a second to the relationship between Rhoda and Jonathan, because that's something we got a voicemail about. Let's Mm. take a listen to Brian in Ohio. I have not been able to stop thinking about this book since I finished it. The broader theme of capitalism being a hellscape is really well articulated throughout the book, but I keep being drawn back to the relationship between Abernathy and Rhoda. The passages of the book where we are given glimpses of alternate futures for their relationship, if either of them had said something different, are both relatable and heartbreaking. They're relatable because none of us are immune to playing the what-if game, and they're heartbreaking because these passages highlight the fact that both Abernathy and Rhoda would be much happier if they could build a deeper connection with one another. It seems that the book is making the case that stripping people of meaningful connections is the greatest burden of capitalism to say nothing of the debt it creates. I think I have to agree. I thought Brian really brought it with that one. Mm, I love that. I, Mm -hmm. it made me think of this passage that I really liked in the book um, that I actually highlighted. Um, Mm. So it, it goes, This is the first time that Abernathy realizes time can pass differently for different people, and Mm. the shock of it makes him mentally stagger. That one or two months can go by between friends and completely change the terms of the friendship was, until this moment, unfathomable to him. Time works on two people in unique, incongruous ways. Sometimes the incongruity is enough that the dual perception cannot be repaired. Um, So yeah, it just made me think of like this this like two ships passing in the night between mm-hmm. these characters and, and how true that is in, in my life. <laughs> and certainly that, mm. you know, even the, the feeling of like, I feel like it's been forever since I got a text back from this person. Mm-hmm. Like that may, that perception of that for the other person may be completely different and it, and it but it makes you feel different ways. And um, yeah, I just, I love that. So we got another voicemail that is speaking to um, exactly what you're talking about, Maya. And it's actually in reference to the epigraph, one of the epigraphs, which is a quote from Nabokov. And it goes, they entered and he suddenly felt that this day, which he had been looking forward to with such fierce longing, was passing much too quickly, was going, going, would be gone. 
Hi, Nerdette. Hi, Greta. This is Alex from Philly. I'm only partway through Jonathan Abernathy, but I had to send a voice memo about the Penin quote at the beginning of the book. Um, to be honest, I am usually somebody that skips right by an epigraph, but I'm listening to this one as an audiobook, so I had no choice but to hear it. Um, and I'm really glad that I did because it kind of gave me this like uh, wonderful frame for understanding Abernathy, who I think otherwise... like. I might have been a little bit impatient with at times, like, how are you not, you know, <laughs> looking a little more closely at the situation in which you are involved. Um, but Penin is one of my favorite books, and understanding uh, Abernathy as kind of similar to Penin, um, who is this kind of like lovingly uh, bumbling character who's like, you know, <laughs> bumping through all of this dramatic irony, um, it, it really made me appreciate Abernathy more. And um, it's making me pay attention to some of the really gorgeous language that Molly McGee uses. It feels like an ode to one of my favorite books. Thanks. I thought that was so lovely. Has either of you read mm. that one? I have not. Neither have I, no. No, it's been on my list forever. <laughs> I hadn't even heard of it. I was like, look at this weird series of consonants together. <laughs> <laughs> Let's listen to another voicemail. And unsurprisingly, we heard from a lot of people who had thoughts about Abernathy and his whether or not he was annoying. Here's Allie in Germany. I'm about halfway through and I'm enjoying it so far. And I just wanted to mention that so far, this idea of whether we can really know another person and the kind of limits of empathy and understanding has been really interesting to read and think about. Obviously, the character of Abernathy is sort of an extreme example. He's kind of annoying to read about sometimes because he just is like such an obvious and extreme version of lacking empathy. Uh, but I think then this concept of entering the dream worlds also sort of suggests that truly understanding someone else's psyche is sort of out of reach for anyone. I've just really enjoyed thinking about that. And um, yeah, I'm excited to finish and to hear what uh, Nerdette Book Club has to say. Thanks. I think it's so funny. I mean, I, I wonder how much, like I felt like in the other voicemail, readers are getting frustrated with the with the choices Abernathy's making, but I feel it felt so much to me like a huge part of this book was the fact that he was completely incapacitated to actually, like he was unable to have free will, you know? Yeah. I feel so much compassion for him. I mean, I, mm. I don't feel the same. I think that it, it was um, being pushed on us as readers, this idea of he's such, so annoying and he's so stupid. You know, mm. I think that, yeah, I feel so much compassion for him. Like, you know, he is just trying to, figure out life. And none of us are really experts in that. And yeah, I just feel like we should have compassion for him because he's, he's just a little more stripped down version of all of us. Yeah, mm, I, I understand in, uh, intellectually and spiritually that that I should be expressing compassion more, <laughs> but um, you know I am I am incapable of, of providing in, in this particular scenario, and maybe that's a feeling of mine. But you know the thing that the, the thing that I think about when in response to that is sort of like, what exactly do I want from Abernathy if I met him in person? Like, mm -hmm. what exactly is the, am I looking for? And I'm looking for a sense of honesty. Actually, it's just like, yeah. hey, you know, quit bullshitting. Just tell me how you feel. You know, like yeah. that that is essentially the thing that he is unable to do and being prevented from doing both externally, but also in some senses internally, because he's, he's in some senses like being sort of um, like there are other people in that world that he occupies that that's able to do that. Rhoda in particular, Kai mm -hmm. also. Mm -hmm. And so it, it is sort of interesting because, you know, 
there, there is this sort of balance between the personal responsibility and the structure that I think is, is sort of interesting to think through in, in terms of everything in particular, but everybody else in the book in specific. And that sense of compassion is is not similarly, it doesn't feel like it's similarly extended to some of the clear antagonists, like Rhoda's uh, ex. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's still this quality of like, um, us versus them, the underclass, the overclass, where I do feel it's interesting when we think about like capitalism as a thing to critique that everybody suffers in it, including, unfortunately, <laughs> including the people who quote unquote want uh, the game right. of capitalism, right? Like we right. just live through uh, the entire cycle of succession, which is an illustration of, yes, you are at the top, you're one for nothing, but you still suffer in a very strange ways because of the system. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, it's sort of interesting to kind of locate this work within this crop of, or this generation of workplace fiction, right? Severance is one, but it, 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 it's also, it, it's, it feels like it's a predominant thing that we're grappling now in a way that really feels different compared to like when Office Space, for example, came out in the 90s. <laughs> like it's a very, we have a very different relationship with the hell that is work and capitalism. Um, and y- y- I believe you talked about this uh, line with Molly in your interview of her, um, the one about success, right? What it, what it means to be successful. Mm-hmm. And it, it is the standout line, I think, in that portion of the book largely because it has its own little section on a page. But um, but it is, <laughs> to me, like the defining uh, existential question that this book drives out. Like, even if you are successful within the parameters of this world, both the book and ours, it's still hell. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know. I, I really enjoyed that quality to it. <laughs> I had a feeling you would. <laughs> okay, we've got one more voicemail. This is Becky from Connecticut. I just finished the audiobook. And my, I think, tagline for this would be, do you want to feel sad about capitalism, but in a, like, darkly funny way? Um, I listen to the book as an audiobook and definitely recommend the format. Uh, the narrator is, because the narrator is omniscient and gives insight into what's going on throughout from the perspectives of the characters, I felt that really added something to it. The book actually reminded me a little bit of the movie Stranger Than Fiction in this regard, especially since Jonathan Abernathy is like not the brightest crayon in the box. Um, Overall, super enjoyed this book and very excited that it was recommended through Nerdette. Well, Maya, one reason, uh, you know, and we talked about this briefly, but I'd love to unpack it a little bit more. One reason why we thought it would be so interesting to have you on to kind of share your point of view with this one is because you are the host of a personal finance show. And I feel like this book is obviously so surreal. It's so wacky. It's so out there. But I mean, as we have discussed, as so many of these voicemails have said too, this book also is very clearly and like it's very deeply rooted in the reality of the systems that all of us interact with every day. And I was curious, you know, as a person who is engaging with that so much professionally as well, how that struck you reading this one. Yeah, definitely. I think about this a lot because I think that when, even when you say that you have a personal finance podcast, a lot of the reaction is, oh, I should listen to that because I need tips on personal finance. And that's fine. I mean, look, I think if you listen to my show, you will pick up some tips. But also the kind of the point of it is more to chew on 
what is the role of money in our lives? And like, Mm -hmm. how did you figure this out or not figure this out? Or how did you come back from that failure? Or how did like, it's kind of to to chew on like, isn't this hard? Is this hard for Mm -hmm. you? Oh, yeah, it's hard for me, too. And so and there's been some reviews of my podcast on Apple Podcasts (laughs) that are like, I didn't walk away with any answers or like, I didn't, I don't, I don't know how to become rich now, you know, and it's like, (laughs) I'm not like, no, everyone should just go and like cry into their pillow and give up. But I do think that there's kind of, yeah, this myth of like, if you can just follow these steps, then you can win. And I just don't think it's true. I think it's very hard. And I think Mm -hmm. that it's an interesting space to be in because it lends itself to this sort of idea of of how to and mm. um i also get annoyed when people just say because capitalism period <laughs> and like they don't really know what that means you know <laughs> um you know like you have to be willing to un- unpack that but i think mm. that um yeah, some recognition of like, look, we are in a system that is is kind of going to be how it is for our lifetimes. And hopefully we can make things incrementally better. But figuring out how you can survive in it and still be happy and feed your family, like that's, that's what we're all trying to do. But um, there's ultimately not going to be any like winning. <laughs> um, so Maya, what are your work stress dreams like? Um, I did have a dream that I had while eating or after eating a a weed gum, like a sleep (laughs) weed gummy. And I actually really think that um, Molly McGee could write a book based on like not. (laughs) I just just in terms of like her ability, like I could Mm. never write it like I, you know, but basically it was that I guess it kind of relates to my interest in personal finance and real estate too. So basically the dream was that um, there's, you know, fast forward to the year 2050 or something when housing is even more crazy than it is now. Nobody can buy a house. The only way to get a house is to kill the people who live in oh my the house. God. And so when you hire... Wait, a, that's a great that's a great Maya, concept for a script. You, so should, you should write this. I know. Why am I giving this away for free? Um <laughs> So the what you do when you hire a real estate agent is they're like these super nice, well-dressed, you know, agents like, oh, we're going to help you find a house. Everything seems super professional. What they really are are assassins. And so they're like, yeah, like, what about this house? Yeah, great. So what they do like at night when no one's looking is they stand outside the house and just shoot bullets in through the walls and kill the people inside. And then you get to live there. And part of what you're paying for is there's no legal issues. You like there's no way you can be prosecuted. It's all above board. Um, And of course, this is like basically gentrification, except like actually displacing people like with their life. And then in the story like that, I imagine like there would, of course, be this like ghost of like a, a child that was killed, but who like still lives in the house. And and so basically, yeah, like the only way to buy a house is is to murder people. This that. sounds like a movie in the Purge franchise. If you ever seen those <laughs> oh movies, oh my god, <laughs> amazing! Nick, what are your stress dreams like these days? Well, now I'm gonna be stressed out by that dream. I like, mean, yeah, that's super <laughs> stressful. <laughs> oh, you know, I, my stress dreams are 
or you know manifold and and very tight and like <laughs> of many different things and not just uh, work. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I was also sort of thinking of like so for the longest time I ran my own business. I was my own sort of employer. Yeah. And the stress dreams there was was very very like. Very, very sort of technical, right? Like, oh my God, the subscription platforms aren't working the today. The contract oh my isn't God. coming in time or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I'm like, I don't know what to write about next week. And so like, how can I support this business? Da, 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 da. Now it's some form of like, oh, am I going to get laid off today? Or like, Oof. you know, or like, like, do people like me? <laughs> or am I mm-hmm. doing a good job? And like all this sort of cycles of approval and cycles of sustainability is like st- like stability right it's like that's kind yeah. of the the lack of it is the feeling of a dream and therefore the lack of it is a feeling of a nightmare to some extent yeah um but no my you know that's maybe like 40 percent of my stress dreams the other 60 percent is like you know mortal danger of like somebody's gonna break through the house oh god <laughs> am i running out of time oh my god i'm gonna be 40 in six years what am i gonna do <laughs> uh, all this you know stuff <laughs> oh my god so let's see. I want to get to recommendations. Um, do y'all have any other things that you want to bring up before we get there? I loved also in her acknowledgments, this shout out to her high school creative writing teacher hmm. where um, it's just amazing kind of the trajectory that she has been on in life. She said, and special thank you to James Diddy's, my high school creative writing teacher, who saw a bratty, scabbed over aspirational high school dropout and dragged her rural ass kicking and screaming to ACT t- testing. Who knew someone with fleas could get perfect scores in writing in English despite being two weeks away from flunking out? Not me. Thank you for ignoring my protests. Thank you for sending my scores out. Thank you for paying the application fee. Thank you for the 13 following years you spent urging me to publish. Uh, If you wouldn't have believed in me, I'm not sure I would still be around. I certainly didn't believe in myself. Um, You forced me on a journey I never thought myself worthy of. I just thought that was like such an interesting Mm. thing to end the book with and made me so much more curious about her and certainly her definitions of success. And um, because I, yeah, I mean, she's wrote an amazing book. Yeah. Okay, so before I let you two go, I would love to know um, if you have any recommendations for a book that you, or anything, I mean, it could be a podcast or a song or really whatever. Um, It's interesting, again, how many people have mentioned like movies or TV shows, but something that you think is in conversation with this one. I ended up reading shortly after Abernathy, um, Poverty by America, which is nonfiction. It's by Matthew Desmond. And I thought those were... Uh, very deeply intertwined. And, you know, especially when it comes to just that idea of capitalism and complicity, I thought they worked really well together. But I'm curious what what y'all thought of when I presented that question. Yeah, when you mentioned it, you, you mentioned it as a pairing. So I actually was thinking in the drinks category. Oh, cool. And I oh. thought of a Chaga Chino, which... Do you guys know what mushroom <laughs> coffee is? Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. For a second, I thought you said Choco Chino, and I thought of the Reese Witherspoon snow thing, but you're talking oh. about something totally different, and I'm really glad. Um, so chaga is, it's like this is mushroom, and then, you know, you can make this mushroom coffee with it. And, uh, you know, in the book, they talk a lot about mushrooms mm. and fungus <laughs> and the ways that mushrooms are all interconnected with one another mm-hmm. and... Rhoda's son, it turns out, died um, after eating a mushroom, and then her daughter is obsessed with mushrooms and like plays with them. And anyway, so 
you know, why not kind of a a frothy? Um, I don't know if it's quite viscous, but I I felt <laughs> like viscous, like that consistency went with this sort of like swampy, almost mm. eerie quality of the book. So. Mm-hmm. Chagachino, why not? <laughs> I, love that. I love that. I think that's really great. That's really good. That's so funny. <laughs> oh my god, Nick, what do you have? Um, I so I have two things. So I, I want to flag it. My, you brought up Severance earlier, and yes, I think it that does power really, really well with this. Yeah. Um, one is a song. Mm. Uh, it was actually popped up while I was reading this. So David Byrne, um, gl- Glass, Concrete, and Stone, I believe. Just a couple lines in it, just kind of like it. It feels like the right song to go behind <laughs> this, um, and to some extent, the lyrics are do capture some sense of like the doldrums of of like working, getting up early. Now, I'm waking at the crack of dawn to send a little money home from here to the moon. It's rising like a discotheque. And now my bags are down and packed for traveling. The other thing, and this is a little glib, Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, <laughs> God. <laughs> Story of somebody in forced labor, bondage, I would yeah. say. Yeah. Uh, blowing it all up, you know? So if you want to release, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, Nick, Maya, thank you both so much for coming on. I really, really enjoyed our discussion. Thank you so much. This is so fun. Thank you. All right, that's it for this month's book club. Thanks to all of you for reading and listening along. And of course, extra special bonus thanks to Becky and Brian and Allie and Alex for sending in your voicemails. It is always so much fun to hear what listeners think of the books we pick. You probably already know this, but just in case, a quick recap of the next three months of book club selections. How cool is that? In February, we have Come and Get It from Kylie Reed. That means you can hear that author conversation coming up the first Tuesday in February, which is next Tuesday, which is completely unfathomable to me, but here we are. Stay tuned for the panel discussion about that book on the last Tuesday of the month. And then our March selection is Cave Akbar's Martyr, which I can't wait for y'all to read. And then in April, we are reading Marie Helene Bertino's Beauty Land. So get on the wait list. All of those books are out as of today. So that means make it happen. I can't wait to hear what you think. And I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. It is never too early to send a voicemail. So if you decide to just skip straight to Beautyland and do it, send us a voicemail. We would love to hear from you. Just record yourself on your phone and then email that audio file to nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. Nerdette is produced by me and Anna Bauman at WBEZ in Chicago and is part of the NPR network. And our executive producer is Brendan Banzak. Yeah, yeah, and th- I think a certain... that... Oh, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. No, 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 no go no, ahead. Go ahead, Maya. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> this Canadian standoff. Maya, please. <laughs> at a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. And rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.